0: Uh, Going back to your complaint with the Nova Scotia College of Physicians and Surgeons.
1: I I was facing radiation and chemotherapy at the time. I was really 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 sick at the brink of death a couple of times. What I encountered when I first called the college and the way I was spoken to was so rude and brusque and awful. When I picked up that phone I was ambivalent about making the complaint. When I hung up the phone I was certain I was gonna make it because I thought this is the intimidation tactics this is the first edge of the wedge where uh, medicine defends itself and shuts down people and I, and I thought to myself this time you're gonna deal with someone with a voice I've got a voice lots and lots and lots of farm patients don't have voices for lots of reasons they it inflamed me that call I said I am taking this complaint all the way because of how rudely and dismissively I was treated by the college. And then then there's an investigation committee that meets and talks and decides uh, what to do after that. Again, dealing with really awful personnel from the college. Um, I needed a surgery, I was I was on the list for a surgery. Someone phones up from the college saying, well the college investigation committee is willing to sit down with you and talk to you, which we do what she said is in serious cases. So I thought, okay, great. They're taking this case seriously. And then she said, uh, but you have to show up on this date. And I said, well, I can't. That's my surgery date. She said, well, that's just too bad then. You know, (laughs) that is really uh, your problem. You know, uh, with these doc it's very hard for them to meet. And we're not meeting again. It's springtime. We're not meeting again to the fall. So you either do it then or never.
0: Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb, I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution. Some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. And in this episode of the podcast, I chat with clinical psychologist Robin McGee. Robin is author of The Cancer Olympics. Robin had a family history of colorectal cancer, so when Robin started to see blood in her stool, she reported it to her doctor. That doctor dismissed her symptoms as a probable infection and didn't bother to investigate potential cancer. Robin's bleeding got worse. A second doctor also thought it was from an infection. Robin also told this doctor about her family history of colorectal cancer. The doctor made a note in Robin's health record, but did nothing about checking her for cancer. Robin's bleeding worsened and she took it upon herself to get a cancer test. The results were sent to doctor number three. The results indicated Robin had cancer. The doctor wrote in Robin's health record that he sent her for further testing, but in fact, the doctor did nothing. Robin's bleeding worsened even more and now included dark red blood. A fourth doctor is not concerned and scheduled Robin for a colonoscopy many months later. It had been nearly two years since Robin first reported her symptoms to a doctor. The colonoscopy results indicate Robin had stage 4 colorectal cancer. Four doctors should have caught Robin's cancer earlier than stage 4. All four doctors have fatally failed Robin. Unfortunately, as we'll hear Robin report, this was not the end of serious medical errors she would encounter as she begins her fight with cancer and her fight for justice. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and all the major podcast platforms. You can also leave a kind comment. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons of the podcast get access to video versions of the podcast. Go to patreon.com slash medicalerrorinterviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. If you are experiencing the effects of medical error or the challenges of living with a complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Robin McGee and a note of caution to listeners that some folks may be disturbed by robin's experiences with the healthcare system great thanks robin Uh, so tell me where did you grow up and what was your childhood like
1: i grew up in ottawa ontario canada and i grew up as number six of seven children so a great big family out there and um I live in Nova Scotia, Canada now.
0: Okay. Um, and after high school, what did you do?
1: I went to university, and I uh, um, went. I got three degrees. I got a bachelor, master's, and then a Ph.D. In clinical psychology, and I've uh, been a practicing uh, clinical psychologist ever since. Okay. That's been thirty years. Thirty more than thirty years now.
0: Uh, And I first discovered you, or I think I recently rediscovered you uh, on Twitter, uh, because you just had a book released. Uh, Um, No,
1: that book was released some time ago, actually, in 2014. Oh,
0: in 2014. Okay. Uh, So let's back up to the beginning of your health care journey that went awry. How did that come about?
1: Well, uh, my mother had uh, colorectal cancer. Uh, and uh, so I had a family history of that disease, so in uh two thousand and eight, I started to have some bleeding, some rectal bleeding, which I knew was concerning, so I went to see a personnel called Doctor Number One. Doctor Number One was a locum for my family doctor, who all called doctor Two, a family doctor at the time. So the locum um kind of dismissed the presentation and said, "Oh, you know." It might be uh, C. difficile, which is a pretty serious thing to, con- to suspect. And yet she said, no, no return appointment. I think it's that. Away you go. Um, do a test for that. And yet uh, that test, of course, was canceled because in order to, um, to qualify that test, you have to have liquid stool, which I didn't have. So, um, so she received that test result back and didn't do anything with it. Just of left it of course the symptom continued got worse I went to see doctor number two by then I wasn't just bleeding it was actually shedding like um, skin as well um, um, and the uh, doctor number two is my regular family doctor had been for 15 years at that point also kind of dismissed and belittled that presentation and said uh, she I reminded her about my positive family history she she noted that she all wrote it all out in her records and she even wrote down about the skin and so on like so it wasn't that she didn't hear me when i said what i said um but she wrote a um a um she referred me for uh, the same c difficile test which of course was cancelled again um and then she sent a uh referral letter to a doctor a general surgeon i'll call doctor number four and that general oh, surgeon,
0: what happened to doctor number three i'll
1: get to doctor three <laughs> okay in a doctor okay. two was uh, closing her practice uh so um she wrote a doctor number two wrote a referral letter to dr four and it was extremely um lightweight it essentially said rectal bleeding please assess leaving out my family history leaving out the symptom severity the symptom duration anything that would have been helpful uh doctor um in the interim between doctors two and three she closed her practice um i found in third doctor doctor three uh doctor two and doctor three i might add were colleagues of mine they weren't uh, because we small we all practice in a small uh, rural community we all knew each other on a first name basis with each other so it never occurred to me that either of them were going to give me short shrift between doctors two and three i arranged for myself to get a uh, um, a cancer screening test um, you know how uh, people over 50 get those kits in the mail I was under 50 at the time I was 46 and uh, so um, I re- I got an appropriate test for that age group and I didn't know at the time it was a cancer test it was given to me by someone at the lab saying you need this um, because they were they were telling me that the C difficile thing was a total red herring and I should never have been tested for that I should have this test instead so I did the, um, this uh, this blood test, uh, stool blood test, which of course was positive because I did in fact have cancer. And uh, that positive result went to Doctor Number Three, who did nothing at all with it, not anything at all. I went in to see Doctor Three. I reported what had happened with Doctor One, Doctor Two, and that the symptom had continued on. It was of course much worse. I reported all that to him. He said, "You need a colonoscopy." and I'll follow up on it, I promise. I left that office feeling, oh great, I finally found someone who's gonna take any action, but he in fact did nothing at all. Like he he forgot, he did nothing. He didn't didn't convey the serious results to the specialist, he didn't (laughs) write the specialist himself, he didn't call as he said he would, he did nothing at all.
0: Wow, and And, I guess you were not aware of the results of that test.
1: Uh, well, no, I, he, he said, I didn't, I didn't in fact know it was a cancer test, but he said, oh, yes, that was, that was a positive test. You had, you had clear microscopic and outright frank blood in that sample. So he knew what the results were, he just didn't do anything um, about that. So, uh, so, um, so uh, what was learned later is that he had signed off in his EMR, his electronic medical record, that he had Um, signed off he had followed up with the specialist when he had never done so he but he wrote in his log that he had so sort of the tickler that would normally remind a doctor you've got to do this you've got to do this it it was just crushed because he somehow signed it off um, without having done it so um, of course he says you're gonna wait a long long time for uh, colonoscopy you'll wait a long long time so I'm waiting and waiting and waiting of course I'm getting worse so I phone him and Dr. Four's office. I say to Dr. Uh, Three's office, look, uh, I understand I was referred to Dr. Four. Uh, It's, I'm getting worse. What do I do? They said, not our problem. You call her. So uh, I call the surgeon's office immediately. They say, "Um, oh, that's not our problem there's no resources you are in an 18 month queue if you get out of our queue you'll wait 18 months in someone else's queue if you start over and so i said well i guess i don't have a choice but to wait then and they're going yeah no choices meanwhile of course i continue to get worse i continue to phone i go, I, I try all these methods uh, ultimately end to end there were 18 separate efforts that i made to get a correct diagnosis um, when I finally see doctor or the specialist, she says she examines me and dark red blood is a, is a sign of colorectal cancer. She says, oh, this person's fine, apart from the dark red blood. So she ends up concluding nothing to see here, no need for anything further, except I can press her. She agrees to a scope months and months later down the road. So in the end of the day, I get a scope and by then uh, was uh, had a, a cancer that uh, we now know was stage four. Wow. So, so this was the best practice guidelines for colorectal cancer is from the point of, you know, uh, physician referral to um, final diagnostic workup for rectal bleeding. Uh, the, uh, the Canadian College of Gastroenterologists had set that timeline. That should be no longer than eight weeks. So 60 days. I didn't wait 60 days, I waited 600 and 61 days for a diagnostic endoscopy with active symptoms with an immediate family history and in uh the matter went to law the matter went to the college the our, our uh, provincial college and in the course of that many more things about the uh, their practices were revealed that uh revealed how how those serious errors came about and quite quite um wrongdoing for which those doctors ultimately were disciplined. Um, and also I can say that the, uh, so it's not just my opinion, the care was terrible. The, the, the College of Physicians and Surgeons here in Nova Scotia also thought the care was uh, wildly substandard, which of course it was. Wow. One of the um, disturbing uh, things about Dr. Four's conduct that was revealed was that Dr. Four had many, many years before, um, abdicated herself from her surgical triage so she let her high school educated sec- secretary triage her surgical cases and the way she did that is that she ripped the screening standards out of a journal and pasted it to the secretary's desk and said when people phone up with rectal bleeding you triage them using this and even though those screening standards say right at the top people with symptoms go on to assessment the secretary read it saying "Well, oh, this woman's under 50 People under fifty don't don't get colonoscopies, so no colonoscopy for her. So, so it was um, it was a uh, in some sense, a, I think, a lawsuit waiting to happen um, in that case.
0: Yeah. So, when you found out that you had stage four cancer, how did that impact you emotionally and for your family?
1: Uh, well, initially, the the cancer was diagnosed stage three. Uh, we now know we now we know not since i i've had a cancer recurrence since then so and in that uh, the surgical um exploration at that time revealed no no it was stage four all along it came from this suspicious place that had been suspicious right from the beginning but it was diagnosed stage three which is a curable um cancer and uh but in fact it was already too late by the time i was diagnosed the first time um the uh, it was a, the answer to your question it was of course uh, absolutely horrifying and devastating I you know I had a, a child at home at the time um, only 15 and uh, so I had to kind of drop everything to go into them essentially two years of brutal brutal treatment and multiple surgeries and chemotherapies to to um, address that I went into remission thankfully I went into remission for a good long time like six years Cancer recurred, um, and uh, and um, unfortunately, I experienced another serious medical error after that, in which the two-centimeter cancer, um, obvious on radiology, was missed by a distracted radiologist. Uh, so it wasn't detected till six months later, when it had gone from two centimeters to nine centimeters, and in that, uh, it of course, was much more morbid, required another horrific. Horrific chemotherapy, horrendous surgeries, multiple surgeries. Those surgeries had complications. I had to give surgeries for the complications of the the previous surgery. It just went on and on and on. I've only really actively been out of treatment for, well, just about six months.
0: Wow. So if you had been diagnosed and listened to initially, it sounds like Highly unlikely that any of these other things would have occurred.
1: Yeah, correct. And so uh, Calorectal cancer is one of the most uh, preventable cancers that there are. It's like skin cancer. If caught in the early stages, people have excellent survival prospects. Not so great if it's detected to its stage three or stage four and certainly very little chance at stage four. So um, So it uh, uh, and I think that was borne out by the expert uh, testimony we had at, at law and also, um, you know, I'll tell you that in seven years of medical malpractice litigation, the uh, de- the defense of the doctors could not find one expert anywhere in Canada or America able or willing to defend the standard of care I received from those four. That's how bad it was If you know anything about that you know how easy it is to get a doctor from the university of cuckoo bananas to say oh yeah whatever you tell me whatever i'll just pay me but they even they couldn't even do that there was no one able to defend it it was that bad
0: yeah, for people that don't know, in Canada there's colleges of physicians and surgeons in each province, and they are renowned for digging their heels in and really pushing back against patients. And it sounds it's unusual to hear of a positive outcome. And Correct. so your situation must be, like you say, of such an extreme that
1: exactly. Yeah, it was such a it was a, it was essentially a, it was a, in a, a, we got we wrote away for opinions. And people wrote back, doctors wrote back, saying, I have only one word for this, indefensible. It's indefensible. There is no defense at all for <laughs> the way each of those four conducted themselves. And then, of course, we have, you know, the voluminous detail. Uh, people went into lots and lots of detail, about where they all, where their care broke down. And there were many multiple places and multiple, uh, multiple places where they were, the correct practice would have turned things around, but... It was one of those, as we talk about the Swiss cheese model of uh, medical error, um, the this, this errors that each of them had made probably thousands of times before didn't have a catastrophic result because someone else was behaving responsibly. Um, in, in, in my case, all four of them behaved irresponsibly. All four of them assumed some other doctor would take responsibility for my case. So in the end, none of them did. And, and uh, that's, uh, that's how that happened uh came to be so, so uh,
0: d- it did you do a complaint with the college of physicians and a lawsuit in civil court
1: correct so uh so um i've approached medical error each of three each of the three common ways people can approach it uh apart from doing nothing which is what i didn't do <laughs> but most of us do do because it we're just too sick and too devastated uh, to do anything else um I did complain to the College of Physicians and Surgeons about all four. Um, and three of the four were disciplined, the doctor one was not the locum, but the rest, the other three were disciplined by, um, by the college. Um, that was a, a story in itself, and I can talk a little bit about the, uh, the challenges uh, of that experience. The lawsuit, as I say, took seven years, ultimately, um, and uh, that uh, was one path. And, but another path I've taken is has to do with the radiology error I experienced this time I decided I would do it differently I decided this time the error happened in a hospital as opposed to um, outpatient practice so because because it happened in a hospital I was able then to use the um, the complaint process that patients can use um, in the official complaint process so I engaged with that that also had significant problems, errors, (laughs) flounderings, and so on. Um, But what I did find out, uh, learn, or uh, what has occurred out of that is, um, um, while the apology practice itself was kind of uh, bungled and unsatisfying, I would say, I would also say that I, I, I feel that in working with the province, the province of Nova Scotia, the quality branch of the province, um we are making changes in how uh, an apologies chain is is handled in my province so there's there's learnings that are happening to that system because of because of my uh bringing that complaint forward so uh i consider that a positive um, remedy even though the experience itself was uh, was um, you know it was lacking
0: yeah, yeah. Uh you used a term there that I'd not heard before, apology.
1: Error and apology practice. So what is what is the uh appropriate response of a hospital based physician and um and management in a case where a patient is clearly harmed and that patient complains? What what is the correct response? So um but with sort of post-harm, ideally there's disclosure, ideally there's, um, you know, empathic apology communication. Here in, in in Canada, in my province and in all provinces, indeed, there is a uh, apology legislation by which a doctor's admission of of uh, apology to a harmed patient is not admissible in a court of law. I might also add that in the history of Canadian jurisprudence, A doctor's apology has never been used against him or her in a court of law that's not how uh, law operates um but uh, i know understand the american system can be different so i don't want to comment on how that that works there because i know it's a little more uh litigious
0: uh going back to your complaint with the nova scotia college of physicians and surgeons uh how was that process for you as a patient lodging that complaint
1: well uh, i can say that um what i encountered when i first called the college initially i would called saying you know is it you know i knew these people personally he said is it possible i could just get them all in a room and we could all just talk about what happened so we could all just learn informally and it didn't have to be a you know I, mean, I was facing radiation and chemotherapy at the time. I was really, really, really sick, at the brink of death a couple of times. I was thinking, I really, you know, this is taking energy. I don't want to necessarily take that energy. Cannot, but but is it possible for me to do that? So I made a phone call asking that question to the college, and the way I was spoken to was so rude and brusque and awful. Um the person who dealt with me said no that is not possible what you need to do is submit a complaint on each of these doctors one of the, and and it was more the tone than anything else it was so um a huge pushback on me even raising raising the situation i thought i hung up the phone i when i picked up that phone i was ambivalent about making the complaint when i hung up the phone i was certain i was going to make it because i thought this is the this is the intimidation tactics. This is the first edge of the wedge where uh, medicine defends itself and shuts down people. And I, and I thought to myself, you know, what if I were someone else? What if I was like a, a, a fragile little old lady? What if I was an immigrant who hardly spoke English? What if I was someone, I thought, this time, you're going to deal with someone with a voice. I've got a voice. Lots and lots and lots of harm patients don't have voices for lots of reasons including illness so this time they it inflamed me that call i said i am taking this complaint all the way because of how rudely and dismissively i was treated by the college when i first initiated my complaint
0: and then how was the treatment as as you got into the process
1: well it was interesting it was very very uh in favor of the doctors that's what what i saw so the nature of that process is that I was able to write uh, the complaint. Now, I'm a psychologist and we really love documentation. And so uh, psychologists are really, really good at, you know, referencing things. So I conclu- for each doctor, I created a binder. And I said, this, I went to the website, and these are the errors that the college identifies as serious errors. And so I took each of these ones, and I said, here's where Dr. One did this, Here's where Dr. Two did this, here's where Dr. Three did this. Please go to Appendix A, where you will see in writing the remarks. Da da And so, um, so I was able to index my entire medical record with uh, with references. <laughs> I carefully constructed this entire uh, binder and presented four binders. So I drove down to the college with four binders in my back seat and handed them all over to that college, saying, "You know, here we are." And so, what the doctors are entitled then to respond to me in writing i get those in writing i'm entitled to respond to what they had written so and then the final pass is them they get to the doctors get to say well this is how i respond to her second um, foray and then the, then there's an investigation committee that meets and talks and decides uh, what to do after that um, again dealing with really awful personnel from the college Um, I needed a surgery. I was was on the list for a surgery. Someone phones up from the college saying, well, the college investigation committee is willing to sit down with you and talk to you, which we do, which she said is in serious cases. So I thought, okay, great. They're taking this case seriously. And then she said, uh, but you have to show up on this date. And I said, "Well, I can't. That's my surgery date." She said, "Well, that's just too bad then. You know, <laughs> that is really uh, your problem. You know, uh, with these doctors, we—they—we—they—it's very hard for them to meet, and we're not meeting again. It's springtime; we're not meeting again to the fall. So, you either do it then or never." And I, and I, and I was like, "I can't cancel a surgery for this reason. And I would do anything. Can anybody talk to me on the phone? Can I do? I would do anything to meet and talk with someone." Um, Uh, About this case, but I can't do it that day, Uh, as it it turns out, by virtue of another sort of bungling in the medical system, that surgery ended up getting canceled or postponed. But uh, so I, I, uh, I, I was able to meet with one person on the investigation committee and one public representative. So I was investigated. I was able to speak to two of a panel of about seven um physicians who uh who those seven physicians got to speak to all four doctors but the eye injured patient got to speak to two of those seven so it, it just wasn't patient friendly it was not a patient-centered process it really was all about it seemed all about um, the doctors had every opportunity to represent their case uh, and i didn't and you know perhaps in another way because i had been so exceptionally thorough in my documentation Perhaps they felt they didn't need to speak to me, but I feel every time a patient is seriously harmed, a college should speak to the patient and all the investigation committee should do that. They need to see the human face of the person. The public, they are sworn to defend. They need to see that face, in my opinion.
0: I concur. And it sounds like the seven member panel that was making this decision are all physicians.
1: There was all all physicians except for one who was the public representative, which I understood to be the wife of a physician. So, um, wow. I'm not certain how how uh, unbiased that person would be.
0: <laughs> you're you're being polite there, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh, so that so the college experience. Uh, what I can say about a college complaint from a, the perspective of efficacy was um, unlike a lawsuit, a po- college suit has the potential to Enforce a change in a doctor's practice. So ultimately, the four doc, the three doctors who were disciplined, were um, they were they were sent a letter, or I was sent a letter saying, "This is what we said to Doctor X." And then they said, "Their piece." What they they quoted what they had in the letter. So I didn't know no don't know no, if I saw the full letter that was sent to Doctor doctors two, three, and four, but I was given select quotations from the letters that were sent. It was like, Dr. Four failed to do this. Dr. Three failed to do that. Dr. Two failed to do this. And um, what they, um, uh, so in, uh, and in those letters, a college is empowered to say, Dr. Four, and they did do this for Dr. Four. Dr. Four, from now on, you must be involved in your own surgical triage. You are a surgeon. (laughs) Your high school educated secretary cannot triage your surgical cases. You are obliged to be part of that process from here on. And uh, they, it, they now, did they audit her to make sure that she really did that? I, I don't believe so. But they are at least able, they're under um, power, they're empowered to command a change in practice. Uh, from, from henceforth, you will read your patient's files, is what they said to Dr. Three for, from henceforth you will advocate for patients when they come in with distressing things from now on you will keep a record of when k patients call in distress these are these are the things that had not occurred
0: wow and
1: uh so uh, uh with dr two they said you know from now on when someone comes in with she she this patient provided you with serious details about her condition and you didn't convey any of those details in your referral letter and you closed your practice without telling anybody and therefore you know this woman's care was left in the lurch completely and uh, so there was a number of uh, a number of factors they identified with those with two three and four and they said from now on you'll do this this and this yeah so they're empowered to do that so I like to believe that conscientious physicians which I actually believe doctors, one, two, and three were conscientious physicians, and if they were instructed by their college to behave differently that they would behave differently uh thenceforward One of them um retired from family medicine, so it was a moot point but um the uh the uh dr four i'm less con- i'm less certain that dr four um changed her practice based on um based on their instructions, but she was she ought to and uh, she also retired so that's uh so that um, that that that's what how that ended in the end.
0: So the process leaves something to be desired. What did you think of the uh, the remedies for each of those individuals? I,
1: I felt that those remedies were insufficient. In my view, what I said to the college is, what I would like to see happen here is, I would see like to see the four, three family physicians go away on some kind of certification training inappropriate diagnosis of colorectal cancer so because each of them said to the college the reason we didn't act on her case is that we believe that people under 50 can't get colorectal cancer that we think it's statistically unlikely and 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 uh, she said well she had the symptoms and she had the family history so you know of course now we know as you in the united states the uh, the screening age has been lowered to 45 because of the mm-hmm. extreme incidence, increased incidence of colorectal cancer in people 45 and older, 45 to 50. And in fact, even younger, it's a, it's a, no longer an old man's disease, it's a, it's younger and younger and younger and each year epidemiologically, there's more evidence that, uh, the, that that ball is moving down the age range. And so when young people are diagnosed, it's really catastrophic to their lives. Either I can go on and on about that. Um so uh so that I thought that was ex- extreme ignorance on their part that for which they deserved to have that corrected by training. I, I didn't want them kicked out of medicine. I didn't think they should be strangled or hung up or or anything in bad. I just wanted them to be educated uh and to practice correctly from then on. Because two of them were gonna remain in family practice. So I wanted to see at least two of them better educated about colorectal cancer. Um, but that wasn't that wasn't a remedy that the college applied. And I wish they had. I wish they had said, we expect you to go on a CME and we want to see evidence that you have done that in the next uh, year or two.
0: So there's a whole process. It's one thing to have to deal with a diagnosis of cancer and then to have layered on top of that all of these multiple medical errors and then having to deal with a system that's not very open to... Uh, patient-centered responses to those errors how did you manage all of that emotionally cognitively with your family
1: well um yeah as i've said in some ways i found the college complaint process instead of being um instead of being uh destructive to me i mean i was concerned and i was anxious uh, uh, I remember the day that they uh, they asked me to come in and speak. My heart was just pounding in my chest saying, what if they don't listen? I'm telling my truth to power, but what if they don't listen? What if they go, eh, you know, you're wrong place at the wrong time. As if being in a doctor's office when you're in trouble is the wrong place at the wrong time. So uh, uh, you know, I was scared that they would respond that way, but then I thought you know, I, I just could swallow down that anxiety and say, they have the burden of public protection If all my careful documentation and all my articulate arguing isn't enough to persuade them that something wrong happened here then nothing is nothing ever would so uh, in the end i i felt look it's their obligation to protect the public i'm a witness to wrongdoing all i can do is sh- sh- say what i know and i and so i did that but i what i would like to say is that you know concurrent with um some of the college part uh, as things got worse and worse and worse for me physically, you know, I was going through this college complaint. I'm you know, writing and throwing up, writing, throwing up, burned. It was burned by radiation. I was just going through horrible physical things and yet getting to the keyboard. And writing, writing my complaint, it gave me a function. It gave me a purpose. It made me feel empowered at some level. I felt even more empowered than when I went off. Uh, and then initiated the malpractice lawsuit because then you have a team, like you have a team of lawyers who are who are also then saying, "Well, let's find out what we think about this." Now, medical malpractice law is not for sissies, is what I need to tell you. That you know that is also very daunting. Of course, as you know, um, various uh, legal defenses for doctors take a sort of a scorched earth policy towards uh, patients, and they will. You know they'll hire PIs to follow you at home to make sure that you really are sick as you say, and all these dreadful things they do. These terrible things. I'm not saying that happened in my case, but I, I mean, uh, these uh, the defense attorneys often stoop to very low levels to to um, intimidate uh, a a patient. Um, but what I can say about it is, even though there was much much pain and struggle in the lawsuit practice, it also is something that uh, from my perspective I if I had to do it all again tomorrow I would absolutely do it why because it was empowering and not and at the end of the day uh, my lawsuit settled out of court for a to be undisclosed sum of money but uh, it was settled um, as I say the, the the defense could not find an expert witness to defend the standard of care
0: how long did those lawyers fight you seven years oh seven years yeah wow
1: so uh it's uh, still
0: hard for me to fathom that you settled out of court you seems like you had a pretty open and shut case and they still dragged it out for seven years. how much
1: well, the, the, how much can you hope, afford
0: and how long will the, you live
1: the secret hope of doctors in a case or rather um well, doctors too, but, but the secret hope of uh, defense attorneys in a case like mine is that the patient will die. Because the, when the patient dies, the case dies with it. So dead people don't need the money, living people need the money. So if you're, if you're, if I have a, I had an enormous cost of care, like I ended up having to, to live in Toronto, uh, many provinces away for like six months last year to get all these extensive surgeries and treatments and so forth. I had to pay for a lot of that myself. Um not the you know, Canadian, so that the actual surgery was was free, but the the, the living and the living expenses, et cetera, of that were, were all mine, my burden. So I had a lot, a lot of costs uh attached to my care. So that lawsuit money, boy, I needed it. I needed it to be able to to afford the care I needed.
0: Being sick is expensive.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and that's uh, um, that's only so, one of a million, many, many expenses.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so, when in this healthcare journey did you write the book?
1: Uh, <laughs> there's another little aspect to my story. It's not a little aspect. I should. I, I'll share it. It, it was um, when I, after this whole thing with these, this doctor's, this terrible bungling is revealed. It's just heartbreakingly revealed that all of them. Were they the keystone cops of medicine, and the whole thing was just a big debacle. And I'm left with this late-stage disease. I then go for my chemotherapy. I have the surgery, time for chemotherapy. And then I discover to my horror that the best-practice chemotherapy for my kind of cancer was not available in my province. It was available everywhere else in North America, Europe, New Zealand, Australia. United Kingdom the whole world had adopted that standard my little province had not and uh, so uh, my community and I lobbied the uh, the government at that time um, to extend our provincial formulary to include that chemotherapy in it so that so people like myself could get it as part of the Canadian healthcare or the Nova Scotian healthcare system. Um, And eventually the members of uh, our our opposition party at the time got involved and then it turned into this sort of fooferah in the legislature and all these kinds of things. But uh, in the end of the day, I will tell you, and I'm kind of giving away the book, uh, the Cancer Olympics now, the ending, uh, the story is that we were successful in um, lobbying the government to um, authorize the best practice treatment, but too late for me to receive it. But I can say proudly, uh, since the days of our advocacy, over 1,000 Nova Scotians have had access to that best chance of cure since those days.
0: Wow! So, no so small we feat. Were,
1: it was no small feat. No, it it was a a, a huge um, a victory. And so part of this, so my book, The Cancer Olympics, tells the story of the the medical malpractice. That's chapter kind of one it tells the story of the fight to sort of survive and what was involved it tells the story of my of the of the wonderful support I got from my community including this lobbying and then it tells the story of uh, the victory uh, in the in in, it was sort of like a Disney movie (laughs) on this triumphant bittersweet note because of course me not not getting the best practice chemotherapy might have also contributed to to my recurrence later on and I was uh, I was going, I am going to die a martyr to my own cause. I'm not, I, I I'm, so the, be, because of that. So now yeah, conceivably I would have recurred anyway, no matter what, because, uh, because it, it, as it turns out, uh, initial imaging did show a metastatic, metastatic uh, lymph node that node was as approved later, the epicenter of my recurrence.
0: Okay, and so you said uh, you've been out of the cancer treatment for six months now?
1: Uh, Correct. So I had uh, extensive treatment, two years of treatment back in 2010. Uh, And then in 2017, um, um, the, the, the cancer was detected six months too late, as I say, because of the radiology error. Uh, huge, huge, huge extent. The worst chemotherapy imaginable. I lost my hair. I, uh, you know, was in a wheelchair. I had My skin died up. My mouth turned into one big sore. It was horrific, horrific, horrific suffering. And um, like n unlike, unlike anything I've ever, ever, <laughs> ever experienced or dread, dread experiencing ever again. Uh, a huge 12-hour surgery to sort of debulk how extensive that cancer was that surgery had terrible complications i ended up with horrific complications and i ended up having to wait 15 months with those horrible complications before being able to access surgery in toronto which helped to correct the, those complications and then i needed a whole bunch of post-operative treatment to uh, to uh, survive all that and uh, so I, that that surgery was just last march so um and so my, my, I got back from Toronto on 1st of June.
0: Wow. Uh, so a lot of listeners may be living with chronic illness. Some of the folks may be going through cancer treat them, treatment themselves. How, what were some of the tricks, psychological tricks you used to get you through such a rough, long period?
1: Um, you know, it's interesting what I would say today is, is, uh, um, different than uh, I wish that me of today could probably advise the me of the past. And if I could do that, uh, what I would say is just let yourself have the feelings you have. Cancer patients are often told right off the bat, be positive, be positive. You gotta be positive at every minute. You have to be positive or you kill yourself. <laughs> and there's this really, really strong message about be strong. Be positive and we don't feel that way a lot of the times we do lapse into despair we do lapse into fatigue we do lapse into um those feelings and uh and, it, and initially i would like oh i can't let myself feel that way i've got to be strong. i gotta be strong so much effort this cancer i said you know i'm not even gonna fight it i'm just gonna have the feelings i have i'm just gonna well just have them <laughs> and if you go uh, the best cancer advice I ever got was something I read, uh, which said, you're entitled to um, wallow in cancer-related sorrow for three days. So if you have a despairing feeling, let yourself feel it for three days. After three days, you have to pony up and kind of move on. But don't, don't, don't try to say, no, I don't feel that way. You do feel that way. Of course you do. And just don't don't uh don't give yourself the added burden of being strong and positive every single second
0: yeah don't invalidate your own feelings
1: 100 100 and uh and i guess that's where again getting getting back to uh, taking on the medical establishment through a lawsuit through the through the college complaint and then again also through this uh the hospital-based complaint process um what what i find meaningful there is you know it it I want to say look my life means something it meant it means something you guys treated it like it meant nothing it means nothing at all to you i'm in your rear from here oh, i made that mistake who cares in fact i was actually told that by an apologizing doctor who said you're in my margin of error you know would you say that to someone you hit with your car you, you wouldn't know. say that you would never say that and yet that's how it is so so um I guess I want to say is that uh, I want to say that that doing these things gave my suffering and my eventual death uh, meaning. So it creates meaning for me to make efforts to improve healthcare system either by addressing the errors of individuals uh, and or by trying to improve hospital practice um, I might add that you know uh, just going back to the advantages of lawsuits for a moment that those um, complaint going through the college process going through the hospital complaint process both of these are noble but they don't actually help you they don't give you anything whereas a lawsuit gives you money and money is not a substitute for your life but if you need care, if you have dependent children who need, who need, you know, my child is not, and spouse are not just deprived of my companionship when I die, they're deprived of my income too. <laughs> the income I was making to support uh, them through life. And so I, uh, uh, they're entitled to that. I had a mother phone me a little while ago, same sort of story. She's just three children at home, little children, a husband in his forties, Cancer symptoms ignored, opened up, closed up, nothing doctors can do. He's dying now. She said, I said to her, You know, if you considered law, she goes, Oh, I don't want to look greedy. I said, You were entitled to him, his life, you were entitled to his income. How are you going to support yourself and three little kids? And she's like, She is at law now. She's going, she's pursuing it legally now. But you know, many, many people uh, immediately back away from the prospect of a lawsuit because they feel that it's hopeless, that the they're, that, they're, that it's Goliath uh, against you and you'll never succeed. And We don't want to encourage people who have do not have strong suits to go forward. I want to encourage people who do have strong suits to go forward and it isn't going to be as bad as you think it's going to be because even if you know, even if everybody in a hundred mile radius comes over and spits on your, your deposition, that's your truth. And you have a right to your truth and you have every right to pursue your lost income.
0: Well, I previously interviewed a woman with cancer, uh, whose cancer was spread by a procedure an incompetent doctor did. And she went to a lawyer um, and the lawyer said, I'm going to be totally honest with you, we can sue, they will fight, they'll drag it out over many years, they'll make it as rough on you as possible, they'll hope you die before it ends. And even if you win, the most that you can get is your lost wages. And that's not gonna pay my wages, you know, being your lawyer. So he said it's really futile.
1: And there may be cases where that's the case, but there are many cases. Where it isn't, and uh you know in the United States, certainly there's a thing called pain and suffering that, that those uh those settlements amount uh on Canada those are capped, so those are no more than say three hundred three hundred fifty thousand dollars in Canadian money, which is not nothing compared to those settlements that are uh, present in the united states but uh uh but i i all I can say is there's lost income there's your pain and suffering um I had an actuary calculate my lost income, and it was, you know, very sizable. Now, I didn't get all that in the settlement, of course. Mm-hmm. And of course, you have to pay your lawyer, and you have to pay, um, you have to pay money and your taxes and so on on, on the services, et cetera. So, you, you you know, in the end of the day, I ended up getting about 60% of the value of my entire settlement. Uh, but that's not nothing, and it was nothing to sneeze at. And it's that's money that's that's helping me survive today. Mm -hmm. and also you know now enables me to take advantage of some things like travel that to give me some quality of life for the time I have remaining Mm -hmm. so um, and
0: what uh, what was your um, awareness of medical error before your own experience and I'm sort of relating it to I had no awareness of medical error really wasn't on my radar at all until I started hearing it from clients, and they were just telling me offhand that it wasn't near misses and nothing catastrophic, Uh, but it was the frequency that really brought my attention to it. I'm wondering if you also had that experience with your clients.
1: Uh, Oh, oh, certainly, I certainly did. I certainly would hear about uh, terrible things. I also had had uh, bad experiences um previously um things where you know you phone about the referral did you get the referral oh no the fax machine must have eaten it you know i've had lots of bungling communicative bungling uh in the past and i learned the hard way that you need to phone the sender and the receiver of a fax to make sure that it actually landed Um, patients don't know this but as many as 30 percent of fax referrals go missing so unless you patient take take point on making sure that the communication happened there's a one in three chance it didn't and your your referral never left never left the, the doctor's office behind the fax machine you know why anybody still uses faxes in 2019 is uh, is ridiculous I once had a cancer surgery cancelled or postponed because the fax machine at the hospital ran out of ink so they had a, um, a uh, the person who normally looked after the machine was on uh, was sick for a few days They had a temp come in, the temp didn't know to change the ribbon, and days of imaging referrals came in unreadable. And there was, the the sending doctors didn't know that it was unreadable, but those referrals were all simply ignored because they couldn't be read, (laughs) and unless the patient phoned up and said, what the hell happened, nobody even knew. Nobody knew anything about those missing. Uh, days of referrals went missing to a hospital imaging department so you know there's no excuse in my view for not using fax to email at least at minimum so there can be a record of what was sent when
0: hmm and wow um, what a bunch of clowns clowns uh, yeah so how is your health now today
1: uh, well I, I uh, I'm going to be undergoing some scans and so forth uh, probably in the new year to look at uh, the status of that um um i well, my last one was a little over a year ago it was about a year ago and uh, at that time th- um the cells they know their cells there they know on biopsy there's cancer cells there but they're not doing anything they're just sort of they were at least this time last year just sort of sitting there <laughs> uh they will turn on eventually they will turn on and take over and, and kill me uh eventually when that happens is not uh not clear but could be right away it could be a little bit um, the chemo therapy I had confers about 48 months uh, survival on people on average so that, that would give me about two years uh, before the very end um, so and of course none of that was helped by the um, the bad radiology that I received so um, just the other point I wanted to make about um, the hospital-based complaint one of the uh, things that I was able to do in complaining about poor radiology um, and this I learned again if patients don't speak to each other through podcasts like yours people don't learn this I spoke to someone who this had happened to she told me when this happened to me I demanded that all my cancer scans go forward get double reads two reads two radiologists read them so I will never be subject to an error like that again I need to be able to trust the imaging I get because it's required um, it's recorded, And uh, so I went to, when as part of my um, negotiation with the healthcare system, I said, you did this to me. I am asking for a double read of all my scans. And they've committed to doing that. So again,
0: uh, <laughs> uh, it's sort of like an automatic built-in second opinion.
1: Yes. And but of course I had to ask, they didn't offer it. I had to, uh, um, Uh, There are a number of things that uh, a harmed patient um, benefits from hearing other harmed people speak, like we're doing today, because then they can go, you know, that's an idea. That's something I can do about the harm I or my loved one received.
0: You know, recently uh, I made a statement on a a patient forum that the more I hear of people's experiences with the healthcare system, the more I've become convinced that in order for any physician to be qualified as a physician and any current physician should also undergo this training, that somehow they should experience a severe illness for a week. So they have that lived experience (laughs) as the patient but also receiving healthcare treatment in its various levels of quality because the value of that experience and how it plays out in their future career treating patients and treatment i think is priceless uh,
1: uh, yes and i believe that can be said for every profession any profession that someone's in therapist police uh, teachers anything uh, having one's own lived experience that was both excellent and terrible can help enlarge um, uh, that you know one thing uh in in my world which is uh, sort of um, behavior uh, child psychologist behavior uh that we know that uh, in all walks of life that is every one of us there's sort of an 80 15 5 rule so 80% of, percent of us are conscientious rule followers. When we drive our cars, we drive carefully and we follow the rules of the road. 80% of us are great at that. We're good, conscientious and thoughtful about driving. 15% of us are not so great. We're impaired. We have addictions. We have personal problems that interfere with our judgment. We have things that preoccupy us and distract us from the road. We know what the rules of the road are. But we fail to follow them consistently because we're impaired so something jeopardizes the quality of our driving five percent of us are total rogues stop signs are for other people traffic lights are for other people I will drive the hell I want the way I want to and every provision mine included but medicine uh, has this this kind of giraffe approximation 5% 5% of doctors are rogues who do not follow <laughs> the standards. They will not accept them. There are a 15% who won't know what they should do but don't because of they're impaired in some in some fashion, and 80% who try really hard to do their very, very best every day for the people in their care. And so um but the, the average person in the public does not know that. When we when goes to a doctor or a specialist, that you know, um, two out of ten times you are encountering someone. One in five times you're encountering someone who who is not on their game at all, and never even was willing to play a game at all. And therefore, your care you are you are in harm's way. Twenty percent of the time you see a doctor. Wow.
0: Uh, Have you had uh, any physicians as clients, and how, if at all, have they struggled with their own personal values as it conflicts with the physician culture?
1: Uh, It's interesting. Um, When I reflect on the physician clients that I've had as a psychologist, the ones that i uh remember most clearly were uh in this 80 percent of caring conscientious persons who were seeing me so they did have some kind of psychological trouble uh or their child did uh and they uh, they um, they were very very conscious of you know i i just want to do the. i want to do my best i want to be as good at this as i can be some of them fled to their medical identity as uh, i'm going to be good at this because i'm not so good at this other side of my life relationships or whatever um and um you know i just remember them very respectfully uh, uh, and uh i've i hear more actually frankly from nurses nurses tell me more frankly uh more often tell me about saying you know i saw that terrible error go down i wanted to report it but then i was told if you report this you're you may as well Pack up your bags and leave this hospital because we'll be, we'll get you for that and
0: um that's a horrible position to be in
1: yeah, yeah there's uh, very much uh, whistleblowers, <laughs> not that we're talking about whistleblowers today, but whistleblowers are uh are vulnerable uh at brave people but vulnerable people um as a result of uh, these this uh, um, backlash culture that exists disturbingly in you know, after I dealt with doctors two, three, and four, I was, I needed a new family doctor, so a kindly, super wonderful, best human on earth took, <laughs> took me in his care uh, and helped me, and I was a cancer patient, I was struggling, I needed medical care, so he agreed to look after me uh, from that point on. I learned that other doctors in my community said, you know, he better watch his back for taking that case, you know, you, you, know, you shouldn't, you know, they were they were against him for having taken on a case of someone who complained about other doctors. Wow. And um, it's, you know, how sad is that, that, uh, that that would be how they, how they felt. So, you know, um, my book, again, the Cancer Olympics is extremely well-researched and if anyone read it, they'd go, yeah, there's no stone unturned here in terms of accuracy. So I sometimes smugly wonder I wonder if those critical doctors who were out to get him if they read the book at all they would go oh god she she was victimized and the, my colleagues that i defended uh without thought really really did screw up really did do wrong and uh you know maybe i should learn from that
0: I'm, hmm. i'm thinking they're probably in that 20 percent that
1: yeah there's <laughs> there wouldn't be there's, that's your right. fuck. then yeah that's right they probably burned it or <laughs>
0: yeah
1: yeah yeah uh, it's interesting it's interesting i've uh, i've had a variety of um, medical people contact me after reading the book some of them absolutely loving every word and uh saying this was the so i've had one guy said it was so powerful for him that he went on to present it at a doctor's conference of his own uh around uh around safe patient safety and so i've never met this person and yet they went on to do that so uh and told me on twitter that that they had and so i mean i've I've, some medical professionals take stories like yours like mine like here on this podcast and totally try to to save things like this from happening again by becoming really really caring about improving um care and others just go la 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 Not listening. Not listening. Not listening. And um, and again, what I what I said about Doctor Four, and what I say about some others who won't listen, I'll say, you know, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. If there's a person who cannot hear, they cannot hear you. They'll never hear you, no matter how loud you shout. Disturbingly, one of the doctors in my case testified under oath. This is although he'd been my colleague for years and we've been to meetings together and quiz conferences together and on the phone to get with each other repeatedly over the years. He testified under oath that he didn't know who I was and he'd never seen me before. So <laughs> you were under oath, how can you say this? Not to mention the fact that if you don't know the only child psychologist in your county, there's something wrong with your family practice. But, uh, but I thought, you know maybe i always was invisible to him and i was thinking gee i'm a colleague with this guy he'll give me care but i was never he never saw me that way he only just saw me as another member of the audience he so wow. you know some of these assumptions that that um you know that, that's painful and that's provoking but at another level i think okay you're in this lawsuit you will never forget my name for as long as you live (laughs) brother yeah Yeah. (laughs) and that's uh maybe that's not a the most noble sentiment i could possibly have but at the same time it's just like
0: that's how you feel
1: that's the best defense you can come up with
0: yeah really so uh,
1: heartbreaking really i mean
0: morally bankrupt
1: morally bankrupt yeah you know and and uh unfortunately lawsuits do bring out the worst in people uh and uh that is something i've heard many many people involved in them describe uh and uh, that certainly was sad how uh, what was revealed however details were revealed about the nature of the practice of the doctors which was unbelievably shocking and i like to think that if they were conscientious humans and they read the expert opinion about their practice i know I, i like to think that if it were me and i was being sued I would read the expert opinion, critical of my practice, and I would shape up my practice based on what I read.
0: Mm -hmm. So your book, The Cancer Olympics, which is sort of uh, those two words beside each other is uh, (laughs) jarring.
1: Well, and the image on the front uh, cover is of a a person looking at a series of hurdles that go on into infinity. So Uh, that's- uh, that's
0: Where can people find your book?
1: uh it's on all the usual suspects so it's on iTunes on Amazon on on uh, Indigo it's uh um it's uh i have there's there's paper copies that are available uh, in local stores here but you know uh, for people far afield the best best approach would be to go through Amazon it's also available on Audible in in audio as well okay cool
0: uh and what does your future hold for you what projects are you working on what are you looking forward to
1: Well, I, uh, since the days of my initial advocacy with the, um, over the diagnostic disaster that I experienced, I became super, super active in patient advocacy. So for many years I worked with experts, experts uh, here in the province and developing uh, standards for family doctors for the appropriate diagnosis of colorectal cancer. I also was involved in uh, setting standards of cancer care. So I was very, very active in that uh, enterprise until that ended and then I've uh, then I've uh, with a group called patients for patient safety Canada I've been super super active in lobbying uh, for patient safety and doing um, um, presentations for example just a couple weeks ago I gave a uh, a talk along with some of my patients for patient safety Canada colleagues spoke to the minister of health of Nova Scotia about improving um, hospital-based um, error and apology practice so we had a number of asks that we asked the Minister to we're doing this across Canada but this in my province being a Nova Scotian I was able to say this is what we would like to see we would like to see patients who, uh, who whose a harm event is investigated they should know the results of the investigation in writing and also we would like there to be a patient representative on the investigation committee not the harmed person but a patient on the investigation committee, so that the patient perspective is represented at some level somewhere in the investigatory process. The so question,
0: say, is that patient on that committee, are they paid like all of the other folks on the uh,
1: committee? That, that it, was a, it was a ask, we have I don't okay. think the policies evolved to the point of, uh, of addressing the uh, remuneration yet, but, uh, right. uh, and I am not even, I, I'm not sure where their policy would go, but that's where we stand as an organization. We would really like, the patient voice to be present um, when hospitals are attempting to address um, harm that occurred in hospital. So I'm very, very vigorous in a- advocacy around patient safety. I am attempting a, 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 a smidgen of a return to work. I need a, a third surgery, which is going to put me offline for many, many months. That's coming up sometime in the new year. So I'm just going to dabble at attempting to work until then. And you know, I don't have a ton of time left. So um, I guess I'm gonna just try and invent a way to end uh, uh, from here on but what my what I have said to and I'm committed to fighting both both cancer at large through uh, cancer, cancer society be a peer support mentor by um, work like this that we're doing today through patient safety I, um, and I, my intention is to do something to help patients broadly, cancer patients specifically, um, uh, and all harmed patients um, e- every day that I, I can, until the end.
0: Well, that is a great note to end on, Robin. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. It, uh, it'll reverberate far, far into the future.
1: Well, that's, uh, that's my hope.
0: Great. Thank you, Robin.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Well, a huge thank you to Robin McGee for sharing her shocking story of multiple medical errors that are most certainly causing her premature death. But as we've heard, Robin is not someone who will let harmful medical practices go unchecked. And she continues to fight a medical system more concerned with protecting errant doctors than protecting vulnerable patients. You can find Robin's book, The Cancer Olympics, online at Amazon, and an audio version on Audible. You can support the podcast by subscribing on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to the podcast. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons of the podcast get access to video versions of the interviews. Go to patreon.com slash interviews to become a monthly podcast patron. Do you need support for your own experiences with medical error or for the challenges of living with a complex chronic illness? You can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself and be kind to others.